how the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what the prophet had spoken, saying, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, you have given us reason not to be afraid. Let us hear it and grasp it and live into it. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, the United States has been blessed with the wise sayings of Benjamin Franklin. Great Britain was blessed with similar wisdom from Franklin's contemporary, Edmund Burke. Among the sayings from this 18th century political philosopher are the following, some of which you have heard. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil it's for good people to do nothing. Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Our patience will achieve more than our force. And my favorite, reading without reflecting is like eating without ingesting. Burke also coined a phrase that has been oft-repeated the moral imagination. Burke described the moral imagination as involving all the decent attire that we take from our wardrobe that is necessary to cover the defects of our naked, shivering nature. <coughs> necessary to raise our nature to human dignity. He said that the moral imagination is something that the heart owns and the understanding ratifies. One historian of Burke has written that the moral imagination strides beyond the barrier of our own private experience. It transcends the momentary events in our life, in our culture, in our nation, in our history. It seeks right order in the soul as well as right order in the commonwealth. 
and it is sustained by a spirit of religion and a whole system of manners and civility. For Edmund Burke, the moral imagination concerns the very dignity of human nature and it teaches us that we are more than mere animals. In his words, more than naked apes. As I was contemplating once again the story of Joseph, the father of Jesus, as presented in the Gospel of Matthew, I was drawn to this phrase, the moral imagination. It is Joseph's own moral imagination that I see developing and even being extended and stretched in this brief episode in which Joseph learns that his wife-to-be is expecting. Though Joseph and Mary are legally bound to one another as an engaged couple, a binding that in their society forms the first phase of their marriage, they have not yet committed the second phase or gone to the second phase of marriage by taking up residence with one another. When the story opens, Mary is found to be with child. But Joseph knows what he knows. And he knows that he is not the father of the child. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and begins his instruction to Joseph with the words, Fear not. The angel's words seem to acknowledge that there are few, if any, courses of action that are appealing in this situation. You see, Joseph is described as an upright or righteous person. This means that Joseph is serious about and committed to the laws of his faith. In today's lingo within Judaism, we would say that Joseph is observant. Within these laws, the choices before Joseph seem limited and harsh. According to the book of Deuteronomy, Joseph can turn Mary over to town authorities, literally the men of the town, to be stoned at the entrance of her father's home. According to the book of Numbers, Joseph can subject Mary to what is called a trial by ordeal, a gruesome and humiliating process administered upon Mary by a priest, an ordeal whose only advantage is that it might show her not to be pregnant and it might show her to be virginal and therefore to be eligible to complete her marriage. A third option, likely available to Joseph at this time in Jewish law, involves some form of divorce. What is important for our purposes is that even if Joseph has a sense of love, forgiveness, duty, concern for the child, or general human compassion that leads him to consider moving forward with the marriage, there is no apparent path for doing so while remaining observant to the religious tradition in which he has been raised and which has nurtured him as a righteous person. Those of us who've been raised in religious traditions in which freedom and personal choice are hallmarks 
may not appreciate how difficult it is to be part of a community and a faith in which the consideration of doing something at odds with the laws and traditions or teachings of our faith is an enormously threatening thought. Spiritually, psychologically, intellectually, theologically, that is what Joseph faces. Yet despite facing this, the text indicates that Joseph's initial instinct upon hearing of Mary's pregnancy is to lean toward not only divorce, which is the most humane option before him, but divorce that is quiet. A step involving potentially less indignity for Mary. It appears that Joseph is seeking the most humane and compassionate response to Mary's pregnancy that he can imagine within his framework. Yet his response appears to lie outside the normal options Joseph's religious upbringing provides. In addition, even were a quiet divorce to happen, Townspeople observing her condition would likely soon link her divorce with her pregnancy, drawing their own conclusions as we humans are prone to do and disturbing the initial quiet of the divorce. All these reasons and all these complicated barriers are why the opening words of the angel addressed to Joseph are Fear not. Joseph, fear not taking Mary into your home as your wife. Fear not going forward with your marriage. Fear not stepping outside the religious law in a way you have not seen anyone step outside before. Fear not following this instinct of compassion that has arisen within you wherever it has come from. Fear not this intuition you feel. Death, ordeal, divorce may not best express the will of God for Mary, for you, for your child, for this whole situation. Fear not, Joseph. Fear not. In addition, there is an important translation issue that's going on in this text. The translation that we read in our Bibles, that Patrick read, says, just when Joseph had resolved to dismiss her quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. But the teacher under whom I studied New Testament, Father Raymond Brown, joins other scholars in translating the verse as Joseph was considering dismissing her quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared. Depending on how we translate, it is entirely possible that this message from the angel of God, fear not, comes to Joseph not after he has made a decision, as if it is some confirmation or reward for him having made a decision, but rather that this message comes from God while he is in the process of deciding what to do. If Father Brown is correct, it is in the process of Joseph considering the options, 
talking with his family or friends, recalling some of those biblical texts that he has memorized as a child, praying, listening to his own sense of conscience, engaging, in other words, his moral imagination. It is in the process of this that the angel appears to him. The angel of God shows up while Joseph is in the process of deciding, not after Joseph has completed his decision. Once the angel appears, the angel takes this instinct that Joseph has that is leading him to want to divorce Mary quietly and drives that instinct to a deeper and a further place. You need not divorce Mary. The angel doesn't really say that, but it's implied by the narrative. You need not divorce Mary. You need not even divorce her quietly. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will name him Jesus And he will save the people from their sin. The best of Joseph's moral imagination, the best thing he can conceive of, is a quiet divorce. But the angel takes even that best of Joseph. And leads Joseph to receive into his own life the child who will save the human race from its sin and from its evil and the mother who will bring that child into the world. Now so far this sermon and this story could really apply to any human being facing any major decision in which their moral imagination is being stretched. Though admittedly, most of us facing such a major decision do so without a direct visit from an angel, or at least a visit that we recognize right off the bat. But what makes this story unique in faith is less the angel than the fact that the child and the mother whom Joseph receives instructions to take into his home are the child and mother of God, respectively. This child whose adoption and naming are the end result of an instinct of Joseph's moral imagination taken one step further by the angel is the child will save the people from their sins. What I draw from this special aspect of this story are two things. What begins as a noble human exercise in Joseph's moral imagination leads Joseph to experience the presence of God, to learn God's will and to join that will in God's work throughout creation by adopting the child as his son and naming the child Jesus Christ. Excuse me a minute. 
a long service today, you'll know why. <laughs> the implication for us is that if, like Joseph, we will engage our own moral imagination to its maximum, if we will be open to it leading us places where we have never before conceived it taking us, if we will allow it sometimes even to change our understanding of previous options that we have thought we had from God, we too may experience the presence of God. We too may learn the will of God for the situation we are facing. We too may be moved to join God's work in his creation in ways we haven't joined it before. To use Burke's categories, if in our moral imagination we will stride beyond the barrier of our private experience, if we will transcend the momentary events of our life, of our community, of our culture, of our history, of our nation, we may come to the right order in the soul and the right order in the commonwealth that we are seeking. We may, like Joseph, come to experience that there is no limit to what God will do when we use our own moral imagination and offer it up to God. Second and even more important is this unique element of promise that the angel makes to Joseph. The child conceived is from the Holy Spirit. He will save the people from their sins. When Burke implies that the moral imagination is sustained by a spirit of religion, he has in mind that there is something ultimate at the end of even our seeking and searching that teaches us that unique among all the creatures God has made, we have a dignity that makes us more than mere animals. Even when our moral imagination is so finely tuned that it brings right order into our soul and right order in our commonwealth, the child born to Mary provides something that is greater than even these secular goals. In this child lie the ultimate redemption from everything that holds us back. In this child lies the ultimate redemption from everything that holds us down. In this child lies the ultimate redemption from everything that maims and harms the human race. Last night, I'm adding this from the 8.30, so this will just give you all a little something, you know, to not have to hear this twice. Last night, Maggie and I were home, and she was going back and forth between decorating the house and writing her sermon, and I was more or less 
done with the sermon, and I'm not that good at decorating the house, so I was kind of keeping the fire going, which was fun. We have Handel's Messiah on in the background, and we have a stairwell leading to the upstairs that is it's an old house that's very narrow and has all wooden hard finishes, no carpet. So in, in the middle of this, I, I literally, I was in another part of the house, but I literally heard a wail coming from the stairwell. And, and I was afraid she had fallen or something, but I went in, and she was just sitting sort of halfway up the stairwell and literally just crying. And it was reverberating. And... You know, like most men, like most husbands, like most human beings, I went and put my arm around her and tried to console her, but, you know, with limited success. And, and what she said was, through her tears, was, I miss my sister. Her sister was a professor of voice, sang the Messiah. Professionally, died 12 years ago, but after 30 years of disability. And then she said, or she asked me, did you see the picture of the teenage boy in Aleppo taking his sister the emergency room, and she was gone. Earlier, we had in our assurance of pardon these words from Romans, from Paul. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't see it all the time. And sometimes we don't even see it a lot. But let me repeat in this child lie ultimate redemption from all that holds the human race back. In this child lies ultimate redemption from all that maims
in this child lies a stretching and an extending of our moral imagination. He is worth receiving, taking into our homes, naming. 